John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 106 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting bravely from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective a true conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And the corporate media, well, they're just uh, completely compromised and co-opted. We, however, at the Individual One podcast are most definitely not compromised. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Uh, we will have all the latest on all the virus shutdown related news a little bit later on in the podcast with the theme of this episode being the United States' window for recovery appears to be about to close if it hasn't already. But first, other Trump related news. Uh, a few days ago, uh, Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, a man who I despise and who I uh, called uh, out sooner than almost anybody else with regard to the shenanigans involving uh, the uh, Mueller report and how he went out of his way to make sure that the, the Russian uh, investigation was diffused. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, did something uh, at least as outrageous by uh, saying that the uh, Department of Justice was going to drop the charges of lying to the FBI against Mike Flynn, the former uh, national security advisor who was in the White House for about 15 minutes after having uh, worked on Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, he lied about his interactions with Russia. He pled guilty twice, not just once, but twice. 
And now, uh, because uh, he's a friend of the president and Bill Barr uh, wants the entire Russia investigation to be expunged from history, now uh, they're going to attempt to drop the charges. Now, a U.S. judge yes, late yesterday put this decision by the Department of Justice on hold. Uh, I have no idea where what that really means or where this is going. But I want to talk about the truth of the matter for for a brief period, because a lot of uh, Trump fans have been claiming that this somehow is an exoneration of Mike Flynn. It uh, further proves that the entire Russian investigation was a charade. The collusion delusion is over. Well, uh, and I've always had a few questions for people who uh, want to take that position. Now, look, I I get that there are some things that have been revealed that, especially out of context, text look pretty bad. Uh, But you can always do that with almost any investigation. And and so I'm not big into, okay, you're going to take this snippet from handwritten notes uh, in in a way that you want to because you want uh, Flynn to be exonerated. No, no, no. In order to even get me into the details, you need to get past a couple of very simple questions. Really just two. They're, they're two basic questions, but m- maybe a few others that dovetail off of them. But the first question is, okay, why did Trump fire Mike Flynn? Why did he fire Mike Flynn? He's a brand new president. He's fresh off of his, uh, his in his view, a historically large victory. Uh, Mike Flynn is a very close Uh, confidant, someone who worked on his campaign, his national security advisor, and it was Donald Trump who fired him. So what is your theory on how that happened? Is Donald Trump a complete moron? Is he a dupe? Was he fooled by the deep state conspiracy against him into throwing his own guy under the bus? Really? You cannot be serious! And if that somehow happened, number one, why are you not reevaluating your view of Donald Trump, right? Because it's really, there's really only two views. Either he's a complete idiot uh, and was easily duped by the deep state, or he's part of the deep state. He's, he's actually part of this conspiracy, I guess. Uh, I don't know what the third option is. And if there is a third option that, well, he just made a mistake and this was an isolated situation and he was fooled by by people he was wrong to trust, then where's the apology? Where is the apology uh, from Donald Trump? If Donald Trump apologizes, which, of course, is never going to happen. Correct. uh, If Donald Trump apologizes for having fired Mike Flynn, then uh, I'm open. And I'm open to the details. Give, give me, if that happens, if, if Trump admits that he made a mistake in firing Mike Flynn, then I am far more open to the details of, OK, how and why is it that uh, the, the deep state, which I don't believe in, uh, went after uh, Mike Flynn and, and got him charged with uh, pretty serious crimes that he pled guilty to not once but twice? And that's my second question here. How do you get Mike Flynn, friend of the president of the United States? This is not a a poor uh, black teenager in the inner city with no money, no lawyer, no political connections, and he gets uh, forced into confessing to something he didn't do, plead guilty to something he didn't do. No, 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 no. This is a guy 
who is friends with the president. Uh, he has plenty of resources. Uh, he, he has good lawyers. He's a smart guy himself. It is absolutely absurd to think that he's going to plead guilty to this unless he did something seriously wrong. It's just flat out ridiculous. And he didn't just do it once. He did it twice. So, uh, so, so the DOJ now is saying, well, you know what? Uh, despite the fact that he pled guilty twice, uh, it, it's just in our political self-interest. We don't want Trump to pardon him because that might uh, cost some votes in the uh, November election. But we're going to take the bullet for Trump. That I am, I am uh, going to act, Bill Barr is, I'm going to act on behalf of my client, who's supposed to be the United States of America, but in, in this case, once again, uh, as we've seen previously, is actually Donald Trump. Uh, I'm going to drop the charges against the guy who pled guilty twice. And, uh, and, and this is a serious matter. Uh, and, and, and the fact that Barr has done this is in a rational world, in a world where we weren't obsessed with the coronavirus, this would be a massive scandal. Uh, Barack Obama himself, former president of the United States, obviously, uh, has expressed to people that this was an incredibly dangerous uh, set of circumstances and a precedent set by Bill Barr that the rule of law was now in grave danger. And I agree with him, although it, it, this is hardly the first time that we've had to conclude that. Now, as far as as Obama is related to this, Trump is, as, as he always does, strategically, Trump always views that the best defense is a good offense. And so now he's going to try to use this idea that Flynn has been exonerated, which did not happen. So he's taking he's he's using his own people to create a false premise that somehow Flynn was exonerated. And now, instead of being on the defensive about why his DOJ let a guilty man off for this, he's going on the offensive and claiming that there is such a thing as Obamagate. And that uh, somehow uh, Barack Obama committed a crime here and that Obama was out to get Trump and he used Flynn to do that and that he has committed a crime, that, that Obama has actually committed a crime. Now, Trump won't say what that crime is. Uh, he's declared this publicly, which let's for a second. Can we just for a second, for a moment, just think about the insanity that a current president is is uh, alleging that it, the, his predecessor committed a crime, a crime that he will not state specifically what it is, uh, but without any apparent evidence, and as I'll get to in a moment, without any actual logic. But here uh, was uh, President Trump being asked a couple days ago at a press conference, a very eventful press conference, uh, what exactly the crime is that Barack Obama committed that he is alleging. What crime exactly are you accusing President Obama of committing, and do you believe the Justice Department should prosecute him? Uh, Obamagate. It's been going on for a long time. It's been going on from before I even got elected, and it's a disgrace that it happened. And if you look at what's gone on, and if you look at now all of this information that's being released, and from what I understand, that's only the beginning. Uh, some terrible things happened, and it should never be allowed to happen in our country again. And you'll be seeing what's going on over the next, over the coming weeks. But I, and I wish you'd write honestly about it. But unfortunately, you choose not to do so. Yeah, John, please. I'm, what is the crime exactly that uh, you're accusing him of? You know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read the newspapers, except yours. <laughs> I mean, 
about that's about as Trumpy an answer as you're going to ever possibly get. But of course, he didn't answer the question, and he didn't answer the question is because there was no crime. And again, I'll go to my big picture analysis of this. Very similar to okay, before you can get the first base on any sort of conspiracy theory to get Mike Flynn, you have to explain why Donald Trump fired Mike Flynn, and you have to explain why Mike Flynn pled guilty not once but twice. Uh, You can't do that. At least I've not seen anyone do that. Similarly with Obama. I don't even need to get into the details of Obama committing a crime that that, uh, Donald Trump won't delineate. Here's all you need to know about uh, Barack Obama and this whole uh, theory that he was out to get Donald Trump. Uh, If this was uh, remotely true, it was the worst conspiracy of all time, of all time, because uh, Barack Obama uh, and his administration did two things that are absolutely positively, at least two things, completely inexplicable. If there was somehow uh, this grand conspiracy to make sure that Donald Trump was never going to be president. Number one, Barack Obama made sure that none of this investigation came out during the campaign. None of it. Correct. Now, how in the world does that make any damn sense? I mean, in fact, the only word we heard of any of this occurred on the same day as the Access Hollywood tape coming out, which I've always found to be more than a bit suspicious as far as the timing of that tape release. Uh, it was it was a non-story. There were no details. And if Barack Obama had wanted to sabotage Donald Trump's election, he had plenty of opportunity and ability to do that by leaking information about this investigation involving Trump and Russia. He did not do that. And he did not do that for what he thought at the time were very good reasons, because he thought Trump was going to lose. And he did not want to in any way, shape, or form, give Trump uh, something to complain about, something to claim that the, the, the system was rigged against him, to, to somehow claim that the election was not legitimate. And he also, he wanted, I believe, uh, and this is, this, is, this is so much of what happens with Trump, is, is one thing begets another. They're, they're, everything's a domino effect. Because Trump was claiming, you got to go back to the 2016 election, Trump was claiming the system was rigged against him. Remember that it's rigged against me. It's rigged against me because he himself thought he was going to lose. That's the reality. Correct. So so he was looking for an excuse. So he's creating this narrative. It's rigged against me. It's rigged against me. It's rigged against me because of the rigged against me narrative. I, I am positive that Barack Obama was preparing the country for a situation where Trump lost a fairly close election but did not concede. And he needed to keep his powder dry, and he needed to keep the powder dry of of sensible Republicans who might be willing or able to come forward and say, no, Donald Trump lost. So people like, you know, off the top of my head, uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice, or uh, a George W. Bush, people, people like that who would be willing under certain, certain, certain circumstances to say, look, uh, it's clear Trump lost the election. Uh, you need those people to keep themselves clean so that if we get into that kind of a crisis, they'll have credibility. Well, similarly, Obama didn't want the Russian thing to be a public concern. It want, he was trying to deal with it poorly in retrospect, 
uh, underneath the radar so that Trump wouldn't be able to use this in his the system is rigged against me narrative. All right. So that's number one. Number two, can we please remember that it was Barack Obama's FBI director, Jim Comey, who came out publicly 10 days before the election and and reopened for all intents and purposes via a a letter that was sure to become public, reopened the Hillary Clinton email investigation based on nothing, based on nothing, based upon the, the finding of some new emails that weren't even directly connected to her that turned out to have no significance whatsoever. So it was his administration, his FBI director, a guy, by the way, it should be pointed out, was essentially rehired by Donald Trump and then fired, James Comey. James Comey was the person who who did this 10 days before the election, and there is a direct correlation between that act and Hillary losing her lead down the stretch. And so if this was somehow a, a grand conspiracy on the part of Barack Obama, it was literally the dumbest and worst executed conspiracy in the history of man, and it didn't happen because it's just... It's just flat-out ridiculous. It did not happen. And the and Donald Trump is lying about this uh, because he's trying to create a, a, narr- a narrative desperate for his own political survival and because his base loves this. I mean, they love... they. I mean, the, the Trump cult 45 uh, loves this narrative as much as anything they could possibly love. I love the poorly educated. And, and it's just not true. There's no... You can't get to first base. If you, I'm happy to look at any and all details if you can at least paint for me a semi-logical picture in the, in, in the larger scheme of things. But you cannot do so, either with regard to Flynn or this idea of Obamagate. And I'm no fan of Barack Obama. Uh, that's for damn sure. Now, at the same press conference where uh, Trump refused to, do, to say which crime he was accusing Barack Obama of having committed, he got asked a question which, and I'm going to defend him a little bit here, he got asked a question about the coronavirus situation. And uh, I believe that part of why and how he got in trouble here, and l- let me be clear, I-, I do not think that Barack Obama, I mean, oh boy, ho- holy Freudian slip there. I do not believe that Donald Trump handled this situation uh, well at all. In fact, it was embarrassing. At the end of the clip we're about to play for you, he walks off the stage uh, in-, in a literal temper tantrum. I mean, he looked like my three-year-old daughter. In fact, my, you know, my three-year-old daughter might have handled this uh, better than Donald Trump did uh, because he can't take the heat. I'm frankly amazed it's taken this long for him to have a meltdown like this because the guy is obviously under enormous uh, pressure from all angles thanks to the uh, coronavirus crisis, which he helped create. And, and so he gets asked a question that at first— uh, uh, does not make uh, his answer, which is to ask China the question you're asking, does not make that much sense in that context, except when you listen to this, I truly believe that Trump is answering a different question than what the reporter, who happens to be Chinese, by the way, and that comes into play here, as you'll hear in a moment, that the reporter is intending to ask. She starts asking one question, then she references uh, why Americans are dying. Trump is is responding, I believe, to the idea of, okay, why are Americans dying? That's why he says, ask China. 
the reporter immediately plays the race card because she actually takes off her mask when, uh, and uh, revealing further that she is, in fact, Chinese and says to him, why are you asking that of me specifically? As if the only reason why you would ask that question is that this is a, a reporter who uh, is Asian and, and actually happens to be uh, from China originally. So, I mean, I doubt that Trump even knows that. But here is this entire uh, interchange, which is uh, fascinating on a number of levels and where basically I, I think everybody uh, ha- did something wrong. And here's what it sounded like a couple days ago. You said many times that the U.S. is doing far better than any other country when it comes to testing. Yes. Why does that matter? Why is this a global competition to you if everyday Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day? Well, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world. And maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me. Ask China that question, okay? When you ask them that question, you may get a very unusual answer. Yes, behind you, please. Sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask a nasty question like that. That's not a nasty question. Please go ahead. Okay. Uh, anybody else? Please go ahead in the back, please. I have, I have two questions. No, it's okay. But we'll you go pointed to me. I have two questions, Mr. Next. President. Next, please. But you did. You called on me. I did, and you didn't respond. And now I'm calling on Sorry, I just the young lady in the back, please. I just wanted to let my colleague finish. Okay. But can I ask you Ladies a and gentlemen, please? thank you very much. Appreciate but it. You thank you very much. And at that point, Trump turned around and walked off the stage in a complete uh, meltdown, a childlike uh, temper tantrum. Uh, And that I do not in any way, shape or form defend. That is completely unpresidential uh, and it's counterproductive. And I I do not uh, defend it whatsoever. However, uh, Trump got accused of racism for that answer. Ask China. And I think if you listen carefully, uh, and this is partially because he's got such a short attention span and he, he he decides to answer whatever he wants to answer. I don't think he's answering the first part of the question. I think he hears why Americans are dying or, are you know, Americans are dying uh, and uh, and cases are rising or whatever. And he says, you know, you want to know why that is? Ask China. And for her to immediately play the race card, take her her mask off and say, why are you asking me that specifically? To me, that was very transparent. That, that showed clearly the, the agenda on the part of the questioner. Of course, everybody's got an agenda. There is no real journalism anymore. Everything's a gotcha. And, uh, and, so, and I, I don't think it's an illegitimate answer by Trump. I mean, this is where this originated. There are a lot of questions about how and why it originated there and, and whether or not China was transparent as far as warning the rest of the, the world uh, in a proper way. I mean, that, those are very important questions that need to be asked. Now, Blaming this all on China is, I don't think, accurate. I mean, it's clearly hugely, uh, (laughs) it looks like it could very much be their fault as far as it being a world problem. But as far as how the United States has handled it, Trump needs to take some damn responsibility for that. Because even though in some ways, statistically, we're not as bad as other countries, in other ways, we are the worst. We have the most cases. We have the most deaths. 
uh, not on a per capita basis as of yet, but, uh, um, but there's no question that uh, we could have done far better. I thought we were going to do far better. We had numerous advantages, two oceans, and some more time to prepare than other places did in theory. We did not use it properly. We did not have proper testing. We did not have proper equipment. Uh, so, and, then that, and, and obviously, during that January and February uh, period, Donald Trump was focused on impeachment and, and the re-election, and he was playing golf all the time, taking meetings with uh, Trump Colt 45 members, uh, including Diamond and Silk. Uh, I mean, it, he was doing everything but prepare the nation for what was about to come. And, of course, he was also saying this is not going to be a big deal. He referenced it as a hoax. It's under control. Well, all that turned out to be totally wrong. And he deserves an enormous amount of the blame for that, as well as the political circumstances we now face, which I believe have essentially checkmated the United States of America, which I'll get into in greater detail shortly. But now that we move into the virus more specifically, here are the latest stats worldwide. Uh, there are now about four and a half million confirmed cases, approximately 300,000 deaths. Uh, Brazil, Mexico, and Russia are uh, three of the latest hotspots around the world to flare up, although Russia is an interesting case because while they have had an enormous number of cases, their death rate is remarkably low, especially for their very large uh, population. So I'm not sure how to interpret that. Germany is hanging in there despite predictions of doom since they started to reopen the country. I, I've seen all sorts of media reports. Germany is essentially now the new Florida, uh, at least from the worldwide perspective, uh, where uh, people are really rooting for, for Germany to cave in and, and go back to being on lockdown. And if Germany does cave in, uh, then, you know, basically we're done. It's all over because that will, will create a domino effect in the opposite direction. If, if Germany does it or if Georgia does it, not Georgia the country, Georgia uh, the state here in the United States, if, if either of those two reverse course, uh, then I don't see how there's any kind of significant reopening uh, uh, worldwide or in the United States anytime in the near future. But despite the predictions of doom, Germany's statistics continue to be exactly where they should be. They're much lower than they were at their peak. Uh, there's no indication of a massive spike right now. Uh, I mean, if there, if that changes, I, I would be the first to, to acknowledge that. But I'm not seeing any of that, despite all sorts of news media articles that indicate that that is going to happen or already is happening. Uh, Sweden is still doing the Swedish thing uh, with results that are not great in the short run. Uh, but may and still, I believe, be vindicated in the long run. We just don't know. We're not going to know for a very long time, at least a year, as far as what was the best way to handle this situation. And yes, Sweden's death rate is higher uh, than its neighbors, but it's nowhere near as bad as some other European countries. And it's nowhere near the worst in the world. And why isn't it? Shouldn't Sweden, in theory, be the worst in the world? I mean... I, I, no one's been able to answer that question. If what they're doing by by not shutting down via government edict, but by doing so via the personal responsibility route that people are making their own decisions for all intents and purposes. Uh, and if that's so bad, then why aren't they the worst? Yeah, they're not the best, but they're nowhere near the worst. And so I, I still believe that the jury is out on uh, Sweden. 
Uh, in the United Kingdom, things are continuing to, to not be very good, much like the United States. Uh, the United Kingdom is worse, as is France, uh, than the United States on a per capita basis. Interestingly, in the United Kingdom, Neil Ferguson, the, uh, the guy whose incorrect model impacted an enormous amount of the reaction to all this. He, he was at the forefront of we're all going to die. Uh, he was forced to resign his position in the U.K. because, get this, uh, he was supposed to be on quarantine and he had a visit from a woman uh, who was married <laughs> uh, to have an affair with her. And uh, this created a scandal and uh, he resigned. And so this is this is the guy. This is one of the key guys that created the entire panic throughout the world. And uh, and I think the bigger part of that story is not necessarily the affair part, but even this guy didn't take seriously these rules, the quarantine rules. And we're seeing that. It's not just a hypocrisy issue. We're seeing that with Chris Cuomo and George Stephanopoulos, two very liberal uh, United States television uh, anchors who are very pro-shutdown, and, and they were both caught uh, breaking the rules of their quarantine because they got the coronavirus as well. And what does it really show? It shows that even the people who who most supposedly believe that this is a super crisis and that we must do everything we can to combat the virus, even they don't seem to really believe it because in their own lives, they're not living it. And if they're not really living it, and I can I can assure you, I can assure you that behind the scenes, these people are really not living these rules. There's there's no way. And in television, especially, I mean, they're all faking like social distancing and there's, you know, everyone's stuck in their own home. Well, now we're seeing some of these uh, TV shows that are pretty well produced that obviously there are people coming to their homes and helping with all sorts of things, including makeup and lighting and cameras and all that. It's all, and I know this from a news perspective because I know lots of people in the news business and they're all telling me the same thing. As soon as the camera shut off. Everyone's acting totally normal or almost normal and that there is no stringent social distancing. So there's, it's not just a hypocrisy issue. It's what do these people really believe? And even the so-called experts, the people at the forefront of this, uh, I don't think really truly believe what they're claiming that they believe. And that's a problem. Uh, now, there are um, there's still some bright spots around the world. Australia continues to be among by far the best in the world. And I, I, I understand that they have been very stringent in their crackdown. I, I don't know whether or not the fact that they're coming out of summer and into winter uh, plays a role in that or not. But it is absolutely remarkable and good for the people of Australia, at least uh, as far as lack of deaths are concerned. And Canada, interestingly, and this stat is is really mind blowing, uh, but there was a report out uh, the last few days that in Canada, 82 percent of the deaths in Canada, 82 percent are directly connected to nursing homes. Eighty two percent. I mean, that is that is mind blowing. And of course, everyone automatically says, well, my gosh, how can you uh, possibly uh, say that that really matters? Are you saying that that older people, when they die, that their lives are not as valuable as younger people? Um, no. Uh, you know, I've got a, a, a almost 80 year old dad. I've got uh, uh, two in-laws uh, very close to 80. One's over 80. One's just uh, under 80. Uh, no one wants uh, older people to die. However, that's really what you put people in a nursing home to do. I mean, that's that's really what it is, isn't it? 
And and so are we really going to equate? Really? Because that's what we're doing. We're equating the deaths of people in their 80s who are not fully functioning, who are in nursing homes, that their deaths are somehow equal to Let's say if, uh, you know, kids were dying or young, healthy adults were dying and that's almost never happening. And it doesn't mean that those deaths don't matter. It means, first of all, we need to put them in context. And second of all, it means, guess what? We know who's most vulnerable here. That's incredibly valuable information. This does not kill indiscriminately. It's remarkably focused what this vi- who this virus kills. And and yet we seem to not want to deal with that. We don't want to we we don't want to uh, uh, admit that somehow uh you know that lives are different based upon how old or how healthy you are. I mean it just to me it's just common sense and it's obvious we do this on a daily basis. I've mentioned this previously, but it bears repeating. I mean, take a look how we deal with the deaths of celebrities. If a celebrity dies like Kobe Bryant at 41, 42, it's a massive catastrophe and a tragedy. If the same level of uh, celebrity like a Don Shula, the most the winningest coach in history in the NFL, he dies during the, this whole situation at the age of 90, no one cares. Well, he lived to 90. I mean, I mean, this is just the way we. This is the way you look at reality. But we've we've lost our minds in so many different ways, uh, and and of course people are terrified. You're not even allowed to make this argument that I'm that I'm making because if you do, somehow you're in favor of death, uh, and you know you're in favor in favor of eugenics. No, it's this is a bad situation. We're trying to figure out the best way to handle it, and boy, it's really valuable information to know. Although they're trying to keep it from us because they won't even let us know what the average age of the people who have died is. And that's a fact. You cannot figure out what the average age of the people who have died in the United States is. It is not possible. The data does not exist. I mean, this is about as basic a fact as you could possibly come up with. And you cannot get that data. You can get all sorts of other data points, many of which are irrelevant, far less relevant than the average age of the people who have died. Uh, But you can't get that one. And... I happen to believe, and that's not a conspiracy theory, I just happen to believe that those, there are many people who have a self-interest in making sure that no one knows what that number is, because that is a dangerous number. Now, in the United States in general, we have about 1.4 million cases, but we also have 10 million tests now, which is by far the most tests in the entire world. And it's, you know, per capita, it's not the most, but 10 million tests is 10 million tests. And it's been done in a pretty short period of time. We had, we reached the 1 million test mark right at the end of March. Here we are not even in mid-May, and now we have 10 million tests. And I, I talked about this in the last episode, and I think I've been largely vindicated on this already, that the the this testing situation is being completely either misinterpreted or ignored by the news media for partisan purposes. I'm seeing all sorts of stories, including here in California, which I'll get to shortly, that somehow we are seeing spikes in coronavirus cases because the number of new cases is slightly increasing, and especially in a place like California with 40 million people. We're talking about really slight increases as far as a percentage of the overall population, but apparently media people are really, really bad at math. But the bigger concern I have here is 
Nobody is putting those numbers in the context of we have massive increases in testing. It's I, I've even contacted the World of Meters website asking them, because they've actually done things I've asked in the in the past, asking them, can you please put next to new cases the number of new tests in any particular day? Because you cannot interpret what it means to have, say, 300 or 500 or 1,000 new coronavirus cases in one day in one place if you don't know how many tests were done. Because guess what, folks? In a situation where a lot of people have this that it's not that serious and they don't even have symptoms, guess what? If you test more people, this is going to come as a shock. This is going to come out as a shock to the media. If you test lots more people, guess what's going to happen? You're going to find a lot more cases. Correct. I know this is is, is just, re- I mean, I, I don't have a fancy medical degree. So, you know, I'm not a quote unquote expert on this. I'm just telling you what basic common sense and logic will tell you. And by the way, for the record, there are some experts who are saying exactly the same thing, but no one is listening to them in the media because it doesn't help their agenda. It doesn't help their narrative. And so we're seeing a huge increase in testing. And I have said, I said this in the last episode, I said, here's what's going to happen. And this is why a lot of these new doomsday projections are likely off. They may not be way off, but they're going to be at least somewhat off. And that's because we are now getting confirmed cases from people with much more mild symptoms. It's just basic logic. When you test more people and you get more cases, you're now, if it's like a fishing net, you're now catching a different breed of fish. And you're catching a breed of fish where you cannot use the same uh, equations to determine what the death rate is going to be. Because now you're getting more and more people with either mild symptoms or no symptoms. And more and more people who were on the fence about, well, do I bother to get tested, are now being tested. And the the positive rate is going down significantly. The positive rate for the whole country of the United States is pretty darn low. But in areas of the country, it's microscopically low. Here in California, we've done so much testing recently that our positive test rate statewide is less than 7%. 7%. That means over 93% of all tests are negative. Ne- now, the test is not 100% reliable, and that, and that plays into it, but it's, it, you know, this, this is what we have. This is the data we have. And 93% are negative. So the whole testing situation is really causing a lot of uh, confusion and a lot of cherry picking and a lot of very dangerous news stories that are going to intimidate people into not opening up, which is another thing I predicted was going to happen. Uh, now, things are finally seemingly getting under control in the New York City area. However, Chicago and Boston are now the hottest uh, spots in the United States. And uh, on the good side, at least for now, none of the places where doom has been predicted, almost all of them red states, which is not coincidental, uh, where doom has been predicted, have not yet experienced anything like that. Now, that could change as places start to open up. 
um, but uh, I, I'm seeing no evidence of it. I'm, instead, I'm seeing hilarious excuses used for why Florida has never exploded. I predicted earlier than anybody else, back during the whole spring break controversy, where the, where the left was going, oh, my God, I can't believe they're letting spring breakers on the beach. I said, that's not going to do anything. Because I don't believe that's the way that this virus uh, gets spread. And I believe that uh, Florida is not going to be like uh, New York. And, you know, the the left wing media and the alarmists uh, continue to say Florida was going to blow up. Florida is going to blow up. Well, now, you know that they're acknowledging defeat when they have come up with some absolutely uh, downright funny excuses for why Florida didn't blow up. And the one that the left-wing media seemingly has embraced the most, which I find to be incredibly humorous and very telling, is that, get this, folks, this is, this is a startling information. Apparently, Florida has not blown up despite their horrible right-wing Republican governor who didn't shut down as hard and as fast as, as uh, you know, the liberals would have liked. The reason why Florida did not blow up is because the people didn't listen to the governor. That the people on their own, the people on their own decided to crack down on themselves. To which I say, okay, wow, um, uh, boy, that, that is awfully convenient for you to come to that conclusion. But let's just pretend you're right. Let's pretend you're right. Okay, fine. I'll, that's fine. That's fine. So what you're really saying is that shutdowns are unnecessary. Correct. Because... The people will do it on their own, right? So that you're telling me that governments don't matter. You're telling me that government edicts are not needed. You're telling me that we should actually do this essentially like Sweden. This is where the people themselves decide what kind of risks they're going to take. And they take personal responsibility for not putting other people in jeopardy, which is, as a libertarian, exactly what I believe. So it's it's abs- incredibly telling to see that the, the liberal media has decided, you know what, the only way we can explain why we were totally wrong in Florida is to eviscerate our entire argument for government shutdowns. And I, I found that to be uh, very, very, very interesting. But of course, uh, you know, nothing will ever change their narrative because once the media gets a narrative, it's over. And once people get invested in anything, it's over. And here in California, our leaders are completely and totally invested in a narrative that protects them. Their narrative is, we have done better than expected, better than we ourselves predicted, because we shut down early and hard, and we are never going to let go. We are completely going to change the rules. We're going to change the deal. It used to be, uh, you know, flatten the curve. uh, And now it's uh, avoid all deaths at all costs. And I warned about this. I said you you cannot give this kind of power to a government, especially a a liberal government, because they will never, ever give it up until they are forced to. And now what we have seen in just the last couple of days where Los Angeles is essentially, although they slightly backed off of this, is essentially saying, yep, we're going to keep these stay-at-home orders in place for at least the rest of the summer. And people freaked out. They, they sort of backed off about that. But here's the reality. Our rights have now become privileges that we have to beg for at the whims of the state. That's what has happened. Because they took away our rights under the guise of flatten the curve. This will only be a couple of weeks. And then once we flatten the curve, uh, you know, then we're just going to we get our hospitals ready. We're just going to have to deal with what we're going to have to deal with. And then we lost our nerve. It was flatten the curve. And now it's we lost our nerve. And and what has happened is this was all a bait and switch. 
And so now, all of a sudden, our rights are privileges. Our rights are not privileges. Our rights, this country was founded on the idea that our rights are inalienable. And, and they are no longer inalienable. They are now instead uh, subject to being uh, granted as a privilege if uh, we behave well enough and if uh, the data somehow supports giving us back our rights, which is insane. It's incredibly dangerous. It is an absolute recipe for tyranny and fascism. And that's what we have here in California, even though the situation on the ground in California continues to not be bad at all. Uh, we have done exceedingly well in comparison to the doomsday predictions of our own governor uh, that were totally wrong. I told you at the time they were going to be totally wrong. I wrote for Mediate that they were going to be completely wrong. And they have not just been a little bit wrong. They have been catastrophically wrong. And no, nobody rationally believes that we are 20 whatever it is, 22 million cases short of what our governor uh, predicted was going to happen in a letter to the president of the United States because of mitigation, because we closed the beaches, because we closed our playgrounds, because we closed for a time our golf courses now make it almost impossible to play golf, uh, you know, like, like you're in a prison or something, uh, that we closed our pools. Those are not the reasons why we had 22 million less cases in an eight-week period of time uh, than Governor Newsom predicted. It's because he was wrong, because the assumptions were wrong, the presumptions were wrong, the predictions were wrong. There's a lot of good reasons why they were wrong. That doesn't mean it's not a serious problem. It's not. It doesn't mean you don't do anything. But when, if we don't open up now, or at least significantly open up now, when are we ever going to open up? And we are, California is a microcosm, I believe, for the problem facing the entire United States of America. And I, once again, will blame Donald Trump for part of what's happening here. And, and, I, and I've lived this because I went to a second uh, protest here in Ventura County, just north of Los Angeles, uh, this past weekend. I spoke there once again, and it was a very nice uh, event. Uh, lots of people. Uh, the speech went well. It was well received. But I, I no longer believe I'm going to participate in any of these going forward because it is now clear that they are nothing but pro-Trump events. That's what these are. They are made up of just people who are pro-Trump. And the problem with the Trump presidency is we, the people who are protesting for our rights and for some semblance of sanity and common sense are immediately dismissed, especially in a state like California, because Donald Trump is so toxic, especially in a blue state, where it, it, it's worse than no one even believing what he says it's if you're associated with him, you are automatically discredited. Correct. Because of the way he handled the virus and because he has handled the blue states. This is the price Donald Trump pays for being a base only president. That's the reality of this. I love the poorly educated. So, so he, he lived his entire presidency on the basis of I need to survive and to survive, I'm going to do everything to placate my base. And that means I only care about the red states. Well, if you only care about the red states and you make yourself completely hated in the blue states, guess what? Now, uh, someone like a Governor Newsom here in California doesn't need to give a damn about what Trump supporters say. There's not enough of us to make an impact, and we are immediately marginalized. In fact, you could argue, and this is the most depressing part, you could argue that Newsom benefits 
benefits politically because he's able to portray his enemies as Trump supporters and that in his world, that's a good thing. That means you must be right. If only white Trump supporters are protesting what you're doing, then clearly you're on the right track. Those Trump supporters are knuckle draggers who don't believe in science and they're cult members. And so therefore, we're going to just disregard what they're saying. And they're, they're, they just, they're just a death cult. They all want to die. And so this is the perfect storm of circumstances that we face, not just in California, but especially in all the blue states, which is why I've been predicting, I believe correctly so, and I might be underestimating this, where this is heading. We are heading for a red state, blue state war. Whether you want to call it a civil war or what, I don't know. But it's going to be a red state, blue state war. And in the red states, they're going to go back to to try to live. In the blue states, they're going to hunker down partially, at least subconsciously, because they believe it's bad for Trump's reelection. Another part of the perfect storm of why we're so screwed here. And Trump himself didn't fully understand this, that he was ceding control of his presidency to these wacky governors of blue states. And there's no way to get the economy back if Pennsylvania, Michigan, California, Places like that are unwilling to open. You can't even have the National Football League without those three states because you got six teams in those three states. And, and they're, they're just, you know, they're the worst, but they're not the only uh, bad examples of this. So Trump, I believe, is in a very difficult position. He's kind of boxed in, especially since he doesn't have his balls. And there needs to be something dramatic to happen to change the equation. Now, I don't pretend that what happened last night here in California is uh, this magic bullet uh, bombshell that's going to change the world. But there was at least a semblance of hope. This was a special election for United States Congress. And what I found to be fascinating about this race, this was a race where a Democrat had won for the first time in quite a while in the midterm elections. And then they were forced to resign in a very strange sex scandal. This is a female congressman, uh, Congressman Hill. And so there's a special election. Now, the special election was between a, a male Republican by the name of Mike Garcia and a female Democrat who was a good candidate, elected to, to, to a state office, uh, who is uh, young, attractive, uh, well-spoken, and in theory, <clears throat> should have been somebody who could have easily won this race uh, in a situation where Democrats are controlling the state. The governor has massive approval ratings because everyone is rushing to, uh, to, to support him in the midst of this crisis and the shutdown. Obviously, Trump himself is very unpopular nationwide, at least in most areas of the country and specifically in California. And so on the surface, this was a race where Democrats should have won this special election especially with Gavin Newsom changing the rules of mail-in voting uh, because of the coronavirus situation in a way that would appear to help Democrats. Well, what I found fascinating about this race is that you could not have created a greater disparity in the image that these two candidates were creating than this one. My wife and I, like everyone else, we watch a lot of television these days, and we were seeing a lot of television commercials for both the, the male Republican and the female Democrat. And it was almost like a Saturday Night Live sketch of what Saturday Night Live might think of the typical male Republican 
and the typical female Democrat. The female Democrat was essentially running uh, as if she was running for the position of Dr. Uh, Fauci's nurse. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Literally every, uh, there were uh, almost every frame of her commercials, she was wearing a mask. I mean, the mask is like now a symbol of I'm against the virus. I'm in favor of the shutdown. That's what the mask now means. Hilariously, there were a couple of shots in the commercial where she's with first responders that she's not wearing a mask. And there was actually a disclaimer on the video making sure that the viewer knew that that video was taken before the stay at home order. That's how politically correct her commercials were. So she's creating the image of this is a crisis. We need to shut down. I'm wearing my mask. I'm against the virus. Meanwhile, the male, Garcia, is literally running as if he's Tom Cruise in Top Gun. He's a former uh, uh, fighter jet pilot. Uh, He's in his uniform. There's fighter jets throughout the commercial. There's no masks. He's not afraid of being associated with Trump. This is basically the ultimate, uh, if you think about this in gender politics, we've got alpha male versus super beta uh, female with regard to the shutdown. So and when I was watching these commercials, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm thinking in this atmosphere, how is Garcia possibly going to win? Well, guess what happened? Garcia not just didn't just win, but and then all the results aren't in yet. But it looks like he's going to win pretty handily. And uh, that is that is a very significant uh, situation, because when you know the, the circumstances on the ground, you realize this was essentially a referendum. This was a referendum on where we're heading here. And even in California and part of this district, it's right next to where I live. Part of it has Los Angeles County, not Los Angeles City, but Los Angeles County. This is not a liberal area, but this is not a super duper conservative area anymore because of demographic changes. And Garcia's win in a rational world should have been a shot across the bow, not just for Democrats here in California, but throughout the country. And there were other Republican victories, including in Wisconsin, that are at least uh, somewhat consistent with this idea of people saying, hold on a second, Uh, that Democrats are in a difficult and dangerous situation where they are far more associated with shutting down the country than Republicans are. Uh, Now, I don't think Trump deserves any credit for that because Trump has totally lost his balls. But Mike Garcia, at least, won essentially on I still have my balls. That might as well have been his campaign slogan. I still have my balls. Look at me in my fighter jet uniform. uh, And America desperately needs somebody with some damn balls. Uh, And uh, I talk a lot about that. Uh, You know, I I, probably more than I should. But, you know, it's important. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. I mean, because we've lost our balls as a nation. And unless we get them back, there's no hope. Unfortunately, yesterday there was another development that showed just how screwed we are, how there is no way out of this maze, and how uh, utterly ballless uh, our leadership is. And that I'm referring to is the the testimony of Dr. Fauci uh, via uh, you know Skype or Zoom or whatever it was uh, to the United States Senate. And uh, Dr. Fauci's testimony, which caused the stock market understandably to tank, uh, w- was a disaster. I mean, he, he went out of his way to try to sabotage any effort uh, to to recover, to restore normal life or anything close to normal life. Uh, you know, he, he warned that there would be disastrous consequences if we reopened too soon. Well, what the hell does that mean? 
What the hell does that mean? And in Fauci's mind, reopening too soon is is if the virus still exists at all. What? What? You cannot be serious. That wasn't the deal. The deal was flatten the curve, get hospitals ready. We did that. And now you're changing the rules. Now you're moving the goalposts. And and you're doing it not just in a general way. You're doing it very specifically because he's cutting off at the knees any attempts to even come up with a scenario where we can reopen. He poured cold water on the whole vaccine thing, not just the timing of the vaccine, but the idea that we could ever even vaccine that would allow us to go back to, to work. They're saying, well, you know, we might get one, but it's going to probably be later than we hope. And it might not be that effective. And, you know, even then with a vaccine, we're not going to be able to end all death. Well, of course not. That wasn't the deal. The deal was never to end all death. That was never going to happen. But to me, the most um, the most important part of uh, Fauci's testimony, other than the fact that he scared the hell out of everybody and and eliminated any cover that uh, governors have for opening up. And that's really incredibly important. Political cover is everything in this gutless, ballless age. And Fauci just removed whatever cover there may have even theoretically been. Even a fig leaf is now gone because if any of these stats go in the wrong direction and this data is incredibly easy to cherry pick for the media to create that narrative, they're going to cave. And there are already other countries that are caving. And the media is making a big deal about that. Lebanon, South Korea, a story in the, in the Washington Post today that you know countries are reversing themselves. The media is thirsting for this narrative. Fauci plays right into it. But here's, I've always been very skeptical of Fauci because he's in love with his own celebrity. He's been wrong constantly. His incentive structure is totally screwed up. Yes, he's an expert. I will not take that away from him. He knows the topic, but I'm a big believer that incentive structure is often even more important than someone's expertise. You can be an incredible expert in the subject, but if your incentive structure is screwed up, then you're going to come up with the wrong answer. And I believe that Fauci's incentive structure is is completely uh, distorted here. And some of the proof of that comes in some of the theories that he's willing to buy into uh, that are very negative with almost no evidence behind them, while he he's also trying to pretend that he holds a very high standard uh, and a very high threshold of evidence when it comes to other theories. He's very, it, 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 it's, it's very dependent on whether or not a theory fits his narrative or not. Let me give you two examples. He just routinely, just very casually threw out there that he believes that the current death total is an undercount, that we are undercounting the total of deaths. Now, let's be clear. It was only a few weeks ago that Dr. Fauci thought we would, we would end this at around 60,000 deaths after he'd been wrong uh, by overestimating, then he's wrong for underestimating. Now he's telling, me that, telling all of us that there's an undercount with no actual evidence of that. Why? Because the New York Times says there's, there's an undercount. So Fauci, his, his clientele, his, his, his customers, his biggest supporters, they're the news media. He loves being loved by the news media. And so here he's giving uh, credibility, his credibility, which is enormous uh, to much of the country, to this idea that we have an undercount. We don't know if we have an undercount. The, 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 the basis for the undercount is, in my opinion, completely just conjecture and theory based upon the idea that there's been an increase in the average number of deaths in lots of places around the world for a very short period of time during which we have completely shut down life as if there could be no other explanations for why there would be more increased deaths than the virus should be accounting for. 
Now, is it possible we're undercounting? Absolutely. But we don't know that. And it doesn't reach the 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 rigor, the scientific rigor that Fauci demands whenever it's something in, in a positive direction. But if it's in a negative direction, he jumps all over it. Similarly with this Kawasaki syndrome situation, which is their new thing. Because, you know, kids don't die of the coronavirus. They can't even come up with any kids that die of the coronavirus. So now they're going to tell us, no, no, there are side effects of the coronavirus via this Kawasaki syndrome. Now, I don't know whether or not the Kawasaki syndrome is directly related to the virus or not. But I will tell you, it's nowhere near proven. There's been way too many, uh, way too few cases of this to know. And more importantly, if it was directly connected, how in the world could there possibly be a significant number of people who get this that have not had had the virus and don't have antibodies. I mean, I talked about this in the last episode. All right. Uh, Correlation does not equal causation. It's one of the first things you learn in science class. Fauci should know this. There appears to be a correlation between uh, this Kawasaki syndrome or something like the Kawasaki syndrome and, and coronavirus, but there is no evidence yet of causation because we know for sure there have been at least several, if not more, kids who have suddenly gotten this that did not ever have the virus. So you can't claim that, especially when, as I just said, the whole world has changed. And when the whole world has changed, there could be other explanations you haven't accounted for yet. But the more important part of this is it goes to Fauci's credibility, that he is more than willing to latch on to any, almost any theory that is in the negative direction while he holds more positive theories to a much higher threshold. And kudos to Rand Paul, a Republican senator from Kentucky, for actually trying to confront Fauci a little bit and saying, look, you've been wrong all the time and you're not the be all end all. And I think and he's a doctor, although not a doctor in this area, that that there's more reason for optimism than you are providing. But to me, the bigger picture issue here is Fauci's testimony shows why we are totally screwed, why the window for our recovery is about to close if it has not already closed. And what I mean by recovery is total recovery back to normal life in any time, anywhere near the near future. It cannot happen because Fauci has blocked off all the exit routes. And Trump doesn't have the balls to fire him. Trump, I believe, got duped by Fauci, got duped into believing that Fauci uh, was somebody he could trust or that he was the ultimate expert on this. Uh, he, 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 He created a monster. The media now is in love with him. Trump is absolutely influenced by the news media, even though he claims it's all fake news. If the media loves you, he respects that. Uh, he fears that. And, and he doesn't know what the hell to do with Fauci. And, uh, and now Fauci is blocking off all the exit routes. He blocks off even the vaccine exit route. I've, I've continually believed the only uh, lightning bolt that could get us back to s- some semblance of normalcy in this would be if football got back, specifically the National Football League. Fauci even went after the National Football. He, he specifically went after football, specific, proactively, not in his testimony, but in an interview. He proactively went after football, saying that this sport is the worst sport you could possibly play when it comes to spreading the coronavirus. Well, first of all, um, I don't know if that's true or not, but the reality is football players, in by and large, are not going to be vulnerable to this. This is not a death sentence. People, uh, football teams play with the flu all the time. 
Just Google, uh, you know, flu outbreak and um, football teams. Uh, the, the Patriots, the New England Patriots played a game uh, last year, last season, where most of the team had the flu. And there's no indication that the team that they played end up having uh, a flu bug of their own. So I, I'm not even going to accept the premise. But the bigger point is he's specifically proactively sabotaging the one thing that can get us back to normal. And to me, this shows his bias. This shows his agenda. And I'm not saying he's a nefarious guy. By the way, there are some people out there with you know conspiracy theories that think he's very nefarious, that, he's, that he has a, a huge agenda here. I'm not in that category. I'm just looking at it from the standpoint, what's his track record? He's been wrong on everything. What's his incentive structure? It's all screwed up. He is in, uh, he's been given power he doesn't deserve. He's unelected. And he has no credibility here, but he has enormous influence because we cannot go back to any semblance of normalcy unless and until he says he can, because no governors, or there are at least very few, are going to have the balls to stand up and, and say, no, nope, we're still going back if there's any sort of spike in data and the news media is just waiting, salivating to pounce on any spike they can cherry pick and people are going to get scared. They're going to wimp out. Trump isn't going to back them up. I just do not see what the path is. There's no way out of this maze. And the Federal, the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Powell today said that uh, what we're seeing is likely permanent damage to the economy. The stock market has gone down for a second straight day. Yesterday it was Fauci. Today it was Powell. The U.S. House of Representatives, uh, the Democrats, ha have uh, proposed a bill for $3 trillion in more aid, which, get this, continues the augmented essentially unemployment on steroid benefits through January. Boy, isn't that interesting? Isn't that an interesting coincidence? What happens in January? Oh, that's right. They're hoping Joe Biden is going to be inaugurated as the next president of the United States. So what they're going to do is we're going to have if this passes, which I, I got to believe it's not. I, I know Mitch McConnell is is not dumb enough to let this pass. But if this were to pass, we would have a situation where we would have catastrophic, massive, unprecedented unemployment. And yet businesses that were able to open up would not be able to hire workers for anything close to a low wage position because workers would have no incentive to go back to work through January. And I'm seeing this in the real life all over the place. People who even want to reopen cannot reopen, cannot find workers because it, they, the workers have an incentive to remain on unemployment. I mean, and that's just a fact. And Republicans were screaming this at the time of the first bailout, but no one cared because we were in a panic. Well, you know, the, those benefits end in July currently. Now the Democrats want to augment them and extend it to January. And if we do that, uh, if Trump's dumb enough to pass that, then he's going to lose for sure, because now there's zero chance of the economy uh, ever recovering uh, before November in any significant way. It's only going to get worse. Uh, and I'm, I'm still amazed the stock market is as high as it is. I still am amazed by this. I, I think it's possible that, you know, in several months we're going to look back and go, holy cow, can you believe that in mid-May the Dow Jones was once at 24,000? 
Because I, I, I look right now, and I realize this is very pessimistic. I actually try to be as optimistic as possible. That I, I look at America now as a stallion who just had an operation. They don't know what the operation was for. It was painful. Something feels like it's missing. Uh, but they're waiting. They're waiting to get uh, recover and go back into the stables and have their fun with the mares in the stable. Uh, but they don't realize yet uh, that the operation uh, was a castration and that they're no longer a stallion. Uh, they're a gelding. And when they realize fully that they're a gelding, it's going to be quite a shock. Uh, but America has now been gelded by this, uh, I believe, permanently, because I do not see a way out of this. There needs to be something incredibly dramatic, either on the medical side. I'm even losing hope that the National Football League will have the balls, uh, speaking of castration, to, to pull us out of this. Uh, so uh, I am exceedingly pessimistic about where this is headed, both in the short run and in the long run, from an economic and a social, cultural and a civil liberties perspective, because I just don't see a path and trying uh, President Trump being in charge is a large part of that problem because of the political circumstances unique to his presidency. And of course, all this happening in an election year is just another element of this very, very horrible, perfect storm. As far as his opponent, Joe Biden, I do want to at least acknowledge that there's been a revelation that I think is important in the sex abuse allegation against him by a, a former aide from back in 1993, a woman by the name of Tara Reid. I was a small part in and having uh, it become known publicly uh, that, get, get this, just a few days before she left his office, she was charged with check fraud here in California. Not an easy thing to have happen, by the way, especially in 1993. People are trying to make this sound like, oh, she bounced a check. No, no, no. You don't get charged, and the standards make it very clear. You do not get charged with check fraud for just bouncing a check. Uh, but what the more important part of this is, and it doesn't prove that her allegation is false, it creates a totally different narrative about how and why she left. And it is my opinion that the more likely scenario here is the reason why she left Joe Biden's office after only eight months is because she was a terrible employee uh, and that she was fired and that the the check, check bouncing charge uh, check, or check fraud charge uh, was a part of that equation. And that in order to have an excuse for why she left Biden's office after eight months, she made up an allegation and it wasn't even about and it wasn't even about Biden. I mean, it's possible that maybe she did have a real sexual harassment situation with someone who worked in Biden's office. But I no longer believe that whatever she said to friends back in the 90s had anything to do with Joe Biden. I believe Joe Biden's name was was added to this story 27 years later in the middle of a presidential election year. And, and it's really in these situations, it's always incredible to me how much the media especially underestimates how much people want and need an excuse for why they fail at a particular position. As soon as you leave a position in politics or in the media, you need an excuse for why that happened so you can go on to your next thing in life. She realized that the best excuse you can come up with is, well, I was being sexually harassed, so I left the office. No more questions after that. And so that's what she tells her friends. That's what she tells her mom. Her mom's call to Larry King now makes total sense because the mom's call to Larry King, which is, in her words, just after uh, she leaves uh, the, the Biden uh, uh, staff in the middle of uh, early August of 1993, she actually says that she had a problem within the, within the office, but that she didn't go to the media because she, quote, respects the senator, which would have been Joe Biden. Well, how does that make any sense if the allegation she told her mom was about Joe Biden sexually assaulting her? It doesn't. But it makes a hell of a lot of sense if what really happened is this. 
hey, mom, uh, I'm leaving my job. Yeah, I got sexually harassed, but I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to go to the media, probably because it's not true. Uh, and then the mom is upset about it, and she calls into Larry King about a show involving sex abuse in Washington, D.C. And uh, so this becomes part of Tara Reid's personal narrative, which she then has to tell friends over the years. This becomes part of who she is. And Joe Biden's name is never actually used until all these years later. And there are all sorts of other many, many very significant problems with her story. So I am now confident in saying Tara Reid's story of Joe Biden sexually assaulting her is a fraud. It did not happen. And I don't believe that it's going to have a major impact on this election. Uh, there are many, many, many far more important things that will. Uh, I still don't know exactly how it's all going to turn out. I am positive that the election was today. Biden would win. But I still believe that there is a about a 25 percent chance of uh, Donald Trump winning. Uh, I'm just not sure how that's going to happen. It's partially because Joe Biden is such a weak candidate and because the circumstances are so uncertain looking forward. But I am exceedingly pessimistic about how uh, this is all going to turn out. So on that very bright note, uh, please remember to subscribe, rate, review and share this show via social media. Also, make sure to take your antidepressants. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual the Number One Pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network. Uh-huh.